Human biology is rooted in this vast ecosystem we call our planet, where each of us is in some way connected to the planet and to each other. Welcome back to Reconditioned with me, Lauren Vaknin, your one-stop shop for all things holistic health and growth and fertility is a big passion of mine. Not just because I had a challenging fertility journey, but also because I can see the patterns of how our actions with our own health and our own treatment of the planet is leading to this level of infertility. So let's get into that. But before we do, a quick word from our partners, Block Blue Light, whose products can also contribute to healthier lifestyles, which can lead to higher fertility. I'm so excited to be working with Block Blue Light again. You guys know I talk about their blue light blocking glasses a lot, but I actually have new reason to talk to you about them now. So a lot of you know we're renovating our new house at the moment, and we have decided to go ahead and kit out our entire house with anti-blue light bulbs. Because of how damaging modern lighting is to our health and our sleep, we wanted to change everything modern houses usually have that we never question, but that are actually really detrimental to health. So in this case, things like not having dimmers because they release such high EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies, or not having LED or fluorescent lighting anywhere, which seems crazy to everyone because that's just what we're used to. We wanted lights without damaging blue light, but in rooms like the kitchen, I really wanted to make sure I still had enough light, especially living in the UK where it gets dark at 4pm in the winter. And this was a little bit of a concern of mine because I still really want the house to be fully functional for modern living. But the Block Blue Light team created the world's first biologically friendly day to night full spectrum light bulb. And that's a lighting technology that really closely replicates the same visual color spectrum as visible natural light from the sun. And this sort of exposure to full spectrum light will increase energy throughout the day and uplifts our mood and increases overall well-being. And of course, these lights are super low EMF. And low EMF is something I've become hyper aware of in recent years and something we're really trying to focus on with this house. So for rooms where we don't need lights that are as bright, we've opted for their amber light and taken their advice on things like having floor and table lamps. So after dusk, we'd only have lights at eye height because our ancestors ancestors would have only had firelight after dusk, right? And no overhead lighting. And we know that when we mimic our natural states as much as possible, our health thrives. And we wanted to make sure we did this with our new home in every way we could. So they also created the first ever blue light free reading lamp that attaches to your book. And it has three brightness settings, but no blue light whatsoever. So it won't damage my sleep in any way, which is life changing for me because I read in bed every night. Now, this is the third season Reconditioned have teamed up with Block Blue Light because we all know that healthy eating is essential and all of that great stuff, but not enough people know of how important reducing our exposure to EMFs is. And I really want to continue sharing this message. Sleep optimization is key to health and these products really maximize that. So you can go ahead and use the code LV20 at checkout on blockbluelight.co.uk for 20% discount across the entire range. Thank you so much to Block Blue Light and now an uninterrupted episode. Okay, so let's do this. There is a lot involved in this episode, a lot of information. Get your notepads and pens out and get ready to take some notes. So before we get into why we're so infertile, I thought I would talk a little bit about my own fertility journey. To help give context to this and to why I'm so passionate about it, because I've seen it firsthand. 
So when we decided to have a baby, I had already been preparing my body. I'd been in remission for just over a year when we made the decision to start trying. Uh, so everything I'd been doing up until that point enabled my body to be as healthy as possible. Now, of course, I've gone even more deeply into this since then. That was like seven years ago, but I was doing pretty well at the time. But something in me just had a feeling that something was off, that just, I don't know what it was. I just had a feeling. So because of my history with autoimmune disease and the harsh drugs I'd been on in the past, like methotrexate, which is a chemo-based drug, which we know can affect fertility, obviously, the doctors were happy to see where I was with my fertility, even though we'd only been trying for, for a few months. But everything came back normal. And then they requested to do a laparoscopy because they were sure that I must have endometriosis. I knew I didn't because I'd never had any symptoms and I knew my body. And I went ahead with the laparoscopy, lapros, laparoscopy absolutely knew that it was going to come back negative. There was just no reason for them to think this. So eventually when everything kept coming back normal, Daniel did a sperm analysis and it turned out that he had extremely low sperm count and not great motility. It was so low that the doctors referred us to a fertility clinic and the fertility clinic told us that we would find it extremely difficult to get pregnant with that level of sperm. And they said something like, you know, if you try at exactly the right time every single month, for maybe seven years, you might get pregnant. And we were like, no. So normal sperm count, for those who don't know, ranges from 15 million at the lower end to 200 million at the higher end. That's individual sperm, so like 200 million sperm uh, per milliliter. And we were looking at around 100,000 on a good day. And on bad days, significantly lower than that. So we didn't really have a choice but to start thinking about IVF. And obviously it wasn't something I wanted because... I'd spent so long detoxing my body of every single synthetic pharmaceutical I'd ever taken. And now I knew I would have to be injecting myself with synthetic hormones. And I was really upset about it. I guess the difficult emotional aspect I had to admit both to myself and out loud was that I had to do this and my body had to go through this, even though the issue wasn't with my body. And that was something we really had to emotionally navigate and we've had to deal with in recent years as well. Kind of that resentment that I was holding in a way. Um, now at this point, Daniel hadn't really followed me into holistic living yet. And if you want to hear more about that in our journey, go back to episode 70, I want to say 71, 72, something like that, where Daniel and I talk about our journey. And um, the fertility doctors, they mentioned it to an extent, like how what you know our lifestyle plays a part but even they didn't really overemphasize the importance of lifestyle and other than smoking and drinking and limiting coffee which they were, were quite clear on they didn't mention much else and it really didn't come across as something they believed to be an issue in a way that would encourage people to really look at their lifestyles and start talking about it we're sitting in this fertility clinic and people are like drinking coffees and diet cokes and i'm looking around and thinking why why like why are they not being guided or educated on this but i kept harping on about how the sperm needed oxygen and antioxidants from my research that i'd done over the years which they wouldn't be getting if he was still smoking weed and as far as ivf clinics go we really did have a good experience with this first clinic and the doctors and nursing nurses were all amazing like they were so lovely and I felt so supported and the the place itself was lovely and I just felt really comfortable but 
from the medical perspective, I didn't feel that they were any different to the rest of the medical model, where they just simply see you as a series of parts working in isolation and in isolation to nature, separate from nature as well. And something that just, you know, science can fix this. And I just always knew, and obviously from my own remission, that there was way more to it than that. So even though they were great within their field with what they knew and, you know, the information that they had exposure to, like with most things when it comes to medicine, I didn't feel like it fit for me. And it also drove a huge wedge between me and Daniel as a couple because he was really at this point still unwilling to give up everything he found enjoyable and recognize that enjoyment and happiness, um, it doesn't come from these external, this external gratification, but he wasn't there yet. And I was putting my body through hell for this, but eventually he came around and that's another story altogether. Um, But this was all part of our journey and something we had to go through to learn and to grow more, both individually and as a couple. And again, go back to that episode that we did to find out more about our journey and how he came to this. So we had our first cycle and I started reacting badly really quickly to the drugs. And I always put this down to maybe my body was so detoxed of anything chemical and so used, like even organic food, you know, like there were very few chemicals, toxins going into my body. So I was just in immense pain really early on and feeling really unwell and just all of that despite everything I'd done to prepare. And I did a lot to prepare my body. By week two of taking hormones, I could barely sit down because when I sat, it felt like I was literally pushing my ovaries up just by kind of my my butt being on the chair. It was so freaking painful. And the scans were showing that the follicles were growing, but they were concerned about the size of my ovaries and the level of pain I was in. So they wanted to do the trigger injection where it triggers the release of the eggs a few days earlier than we planned. But they said that they had to get them out of me sooner um, because they then realized that I had ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which can be really dangerous. So then a whole journey happened from there. So they took them out And as soon as that procedure was over, that night I became really, really unwell. Um, So first of all, they'd they'd called us to say, we've got five five eggs and they're all, we've got five mature eggs because they can only use mature eggs and um, we're going to fertilize them. And then the next day they called and said, they've all fertilized, they're really good quality, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, I was getting sicker and sicker. I ended up in A&E in so much pain and so ill that I ended up being put on morphine and um, I had an infection in my cervix. I had the ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. I had some other infection. I don't know. Um, I was so, so ill. I was so high on morphine for days because they couldn't take me off it because my ovaries were in so much pain. And then we got the call that they'd um, all fertilized, they were growing well. And this was like, as I was in hospital and Daniel was taking these calls and they said, you know, we can't leave them after day five. Um, you can't have them put, because usually you wait until day five and then you go back in and you have the embryo transfer. But I couldn't go back in to have that because I was so sick. So they said, until your body is stronger, it's, then it's not going to accept an embryo and create a pregnancy or allow for conception. So they froze all five embryos that had got to top grade quality. And I, you know, came out of hospital after five days and I spent the time healing. And then it was, I think, two and a half months later on my next cycle, they took the embryos out the freezer and we were all ready to go. And none of them survived the thaw. All of, all of the embryos died basically so we'd been through all of that and lost our embryos didn't have anything to go on and had to do the whole thing again so my question was 
Were those embryos not viable because the eggs had to be removed early or because the sperm wasn't of good enough quality or maybe the eggs weren't even because maybe the eggs, you know, in my body just weren't used to fertility drugs and my body was finding it hard or maybe there was something else. Who knows? Maybe a culmination of all, maybe none at all. We'll never know. <laughs> so we went back in for the next cycle um, not long after, like I said, about two and a half months, um, really not having dealt very well with the emotional trauma of what had happened because I didn't really know how to process it it was just a case of right this has happened I need to get over it and we need to go again as soon as possible because this is just you know like an ongoing battle and every part of fertility treatment comes with waiting and it's a really great education on patience and surrender because there is literally nothing you can do you are on the drugs and every other day you have to go in for a scan and see if you've got more follicles growing and you don't know until you're there and then until the end you don't know how many you'll have and until they take them out and then they call you you don't know how many and know how many were mature and that's the important thing and then you have to wait to find out how many actually fertilize with the sperm and then the next day you wait to find out how many of those kept growing and and um that the cells doubled and tripled and whatever and um that they multiplied basically and then after that, you've got to wait the next day and the next day until day five. And on day five, have they reached what they call blastocyst, where there are enough cells that they can um, do the embryo transfer? And then you have the embryo transfer, and then you have to wait two weeks to find out if you're pregnant. It's just like this whole game of patience and surrender, which I wasn't very good at. I, I found it really hard in this situation. But the second time, you know, and then the third time, you, you get a bit, um, a bit better at it. And actually, I wish I had more guidance in that in the holistic side of how to manage the emotions of that. But anyway, so the next time I didn't get um, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, I still experienced a lot of pain and discomfort. Like I, I couldn't work, I wasn't functioning. Um, and we had less eggs this time. And there were only two that were looking, well, only two embryos after the procedure that were looking to be viable. So we put both of them back and had the dreaded two week wait before you take a pregnancy test. And I was pregnant. And yeah, we just spent so long not knowing what it felt like to just take a pregnancy test, you know, and just do that normally. And it was the most emotional moment. I couldn't, I just couldn't process. And we were super excited. And um, then I started to bleed a couple of weeks later. And it turns out that I was losing one of the two. So we went in to have a scan. It turns out that I had been pregnant with two. Um, but we had lost one and one of them was better quality than the other one. So we always presumed that it was the one that was, wasn't of the better quality of embryo, um, that we lost, but I just knew instinctively that everything would be okay with the other one. And the other one was Braxton, who is now six and a half. So, um, yeah, so I spent my pregnancy with him just trying to be as healthy as I could, knowing that the synthetic hormones would affect him in some way because they were part of his conception and therefore embedded epigenetically into his DNA. And I wanted to mitigate that where I could. And then after he was born, I worked really hard with my homeopath to detox all the hormones. Now, what I haven't touched on yet is MTHFR. And those of you who listen a lot or follow me on social media or read my articles know that MTHFR is something I talk about a lot. And it means a lot of things and I'm not going to get too scientific about it because it's a whole episode in itself. And I would highly recommend going to my blog, laurenvacneen.co.uk and typing in MTHFR. There are two really extensive articles there. And also checking out Dr. Ben Lynch's um, Dirty Genes book. 
Um, but essentially, MTHFR is involved in the breaking down of homocysteine. And if you have a specific variant of it, we call it a gene polymorphism as opposed to a mutation. But for ease, it, we can just call it mutation. It's easier to, to kind of get our heads around it. And about 70% of the population have MTHFR and have this specific um, variant of it. And it essentially means we can't methylate. So we can't process nutrients effectively. And we can then we end up turning certain synthetic vitamins into toxins. We basically convert them into toxins instead of utilizing the vitamins, which increases toxic load and can lead to onset of disease. So if you have one of the variants, your body will convert synthetic folic acid and other B vitamins into toxins. Now, obviously, if you're pregnant and your body is unable to methylate folic acid, it won't be getting to your baby. Now, luckily for me, I learned about this before we started IVF and I knew what I needed. But unfortunately, none of the doctors understood it themselves. So when, in fact, if you have MTHFR, you could not go anywhere near synthetic vitamins and especially not folic acid. And you have to be taking natural folate in the form of methylfolate and B12 in the form of methylcobalamin, the doctor's interpretation of this was that, oh, you don't absorb enough folic acid in pregnancy, so you need to take more folic acid. Here's some synthetic folic acid. And when I tried to explain to my obstetrician about this, he was almost angry with me. Like They just can't understand that there is information out there. I say they. There are some amazing doctors who are very learned and always open to learning, but I've had so many experiences where a doctor doesn't want to hear something that they don't already know from a patient. And I found this really difficult because this was information I had been studying for years and was really kind of gaining more and more knowledge on what MTHFR meant for pregnancy and what it could mean for miscarriage. And I wasn't being heard by the doctors. So firstly, they don't realize that 70% of women have this. They'll only speak about it if a woman herself mentions it and it's gone and the woman has gone and had a private test herself because the NHS don't cover it and they don't offer it, they don't even mention it. But more than that, the amount of recommended folic acid that they are recommending can lead to extreme problems. So they believe that MTHFR can lead to birth defects if you don't get enough folic acid. When the issue is actually that we have to get a deeper understanding of MTHFR and have plenty of methylfolate and a whole range of other lifestyle things that reduce our exposure to toxicity, which is where MTHFR really goes wild and affects your body and your health if you are really highly exposed to toxicity through food and just everything in lifestyle, the toxins in water, at high EMF exposure from 5G, not turning off Wi-Fi at night, that kind of thing, and also gluten really plays a massive part. So it was just kind of another thing that made me realize that the medical model doesn't have an understanding of, of the body as a complete thing, as us, as complete beings with a lot of nuance. And if it wasn't within their training, they often just don't have the understanding of it. And it came back once again for me to knowing I had to take full ownership and responsibility for my well-being and for that of my child. And I know it's easier to listen to a doctor when they give you advice or even tell you, you know, everything's fine, you're good. And then you can go away and be like, okay, doctor said I'm good, great. But we have to understand our own bodies at a deeper level and 
feel into what's going on, not just take a doctor's word for gospel. They're human beings who are, you know, at the mercy of the information that they have been exposed to. That's it. Whereas we have this deep inner knowing and we just don't tap into it. And I knew the fertility was hugely based on this. So again, I'll link those articles I wrote in the show notes, but go to laurenbackney.co.uk and you'll find them there. Anyway, I went on to have Braxton and then we had to go back to have IVF again if we wanted another baby. And we did one more round at the first clinic, which ended in an early miscarriage. And again, we never had answers for that, but I do believe it to be due to the quality of sperm. And then we decided to change clinics. Now, it wasn't until I found Zeta West, who I have done an episode with. Again, oh, I'm so rubbish here. I should go back before I do these episodes and (laughs) write down what the episode numbers are so you guys can know. But um, just scroll back, basically. You'll find an episode with Zeta West. Um, And that experience became very different. So Zeta believes that the way we live our lives will absolutely determine our fertility and The more digging and research I was doing, the more I was seeing this. I mean, intuitively, I think I always knew it as I prepared my body as best I could for the hormones and the procedures, which I've also got another article about on my blog, which you can read, um, how to um, manage fertility, six tips to, to manage fertility treatment holistically, something along those lines. (laughs) I'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, But more importantly, Zeta stresses the importance of the sperm quality. And she stressed this to Daniel and she got him on a whole range of antioxidants and a specific diet that was guided by a clinic nutritionist. And at this point, he really started taking note. It didn't matter that I was a nutritionist. (laughs) He didn't want to listen to me. But I found this really helpful that I also had a nutritionist. So regardless of whether I'm a nutritionist or not, it was really good to have someone who was specifically trained in fertility guiding me with a holistic approach. And they also offer acupuncture and um, just a whole holistic approach. So we got pregnant with Vida on the first try. And again, I detoxed after that. And Daniel's been following a much more healthy lifestyle and going deeper into his own learning and journey for a few years. And For those who don't yet know about our journey in December 2021, I fell pregnant naturally, very unexpectedly. Um, We weren't planning more children because we didn't want to have more IVF. And we're both pretty certain that it happened as a result of how much Daniel has detoxed and how healthy he eats and his limited exposure to toxicity where possible. But also, as it's just as much about the breath work and the meditation and the stress management and how that plays a part in the ability to be fertile based on our energy and the energy we're transmitting. So unfortunately, the pregnancy was ectopic and it was a really rare ectopic where the baby was growing on the ovary and it ruptured and I ended up needing two emergency surgeries um, for the internal bleeding. And it's very much been a time of reflecting and processing, which we're still doing. It's only February when I record this, but ultimately it's taught us a lot and it's given us a lot to be grateful for and also showed us just what can happen fertility-wise when we change our lifestyle to that extent. So that's it about my fertility journey. And now I want to talk about fertility and why we are so infertile. So we like to think about fertility like it's our own individual problem 
when someone has a fertility issue, you know? But it's not this egocentric issue of, I have fertility issues. You know, I have to have IVF. It's global. It's affecting us all. And we need to take a moment to absorb this information to understand why and understand how important it is that we all play a part in it. Because if we keep seeing this as an individual problem, we're never going to solve the collective issue and work together to heal the issue that really, if we don't acknowledge and recognize fully, could mean the extinction of a human race. Now, it doesn't have to be like that. We can change it, but we have to understand it and be willing to make those changes. And it doesn't matter if you're past the age of bearing children or you don't want children or you're retired or you've gone through the menopause or you feel this doesn't affect you because your kids are a little bit old, whatever it is. This is the problem. We operate from the story of separation, as Charles Eisenstein calls it, where we see ourselves as separate from each other. But the very fabric of the universe means we cannot possibly be separate. We're all connected deeply. If we don't start making changes on a global level, each of us taking responsibility for the continuation of the human race, there won't be a human race. There will be a planet. The planet will be fine without us, as Vandana Shiva tells us, but we will not be here. We're seeing a 55% drop in sperm count in Western countries over the past 40 years. And we're also seeing PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, in one in four girls. And we're also seeing a 15% rise in what we deem, quote unquote, unknown fertility. But my experience in the world of healthcare has shown me that nothing has no reason. And, you know, I was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, idiopathic meaning no defined cause. And I know exactly now what the causes were after years of research and digging. Everything has a defined cause. No disease comes out of thin air and infertility doesn't either. Now I'm taking a lot of these stats from Dr. Zach Bush, who I just adore and whose work in trying to rebuild this crumbling ecology of ours is mind blowing. I think he's one of the most brilliant minds on the planet right now. So Dr. Bush explains that, he explains this that we're starting to see a collapse in human fertility as a direct result of the destruction of our own ecology at a soil level. So the, the, the quality of our soil is integral. So he says that we're actually destroying the ecosystem with pesticides and herbicides and chemical farming. And then, and that's what, you know, Dr. Vandana Shiva also uh, talks about and campaigns for. And then we further decimate the biodiversity of our bodies and ecosystem through pharmaceuticals by damaging our immune system so profoundly through lack of providing them with what they actually need, which is nature. We rely so heavily on pharmaceuticals after being fed this lie that we cannot survive without them. And yet, here is the human species millennia later with no pharmaceuticals for a long time finally starting to see the decrease in human fertility for the very first time ever at this point when we've never had more pharmaceuticals 
And yes, of course, like with anything, there is probably a multifaceted, this is probably a multifaceted issue that isn't solely down to crops and pharmaceuticals. There are other factors at play we don't know about as well. And some we do. Others I'm going to mention in a minute. But let's stay on the chemical side of things for a moment. So a big part of this destruction of our biodiversity is also a lot in part to antibiotic use, including antibiotic use in the meat we're eating. So another stat from Zach Bush states that 7.7 million pounds of antibiotics in humans and 35 million pounds in animals that go on to be meat, which is just astronomical. Thinking about how much antibiotic that is, 35 million pounds. If you're eating non-organic animals, chances are you're consuming that each time and thereby destroying the very microbiome that keeps you alive and subsequently not just your biodiversity, but that of the rest of us. And this goes for vegans as well because the chemicals used and, and, and the, the farming measures used to create enough of this like absolute burger or whatever these fake burgers are called, that needs a lot of GMO corn and a lot of GMO soy. So it's not that, you know, plant-based are, you know, more noble than meat eaters. It's that we all need to be knowing where our food's coming from. And we all need to be eating fully organic. So then we have the issue of glyphosate, which is ubiquitous now in most non-organic farming. Roundup, the pesticide that gets used in in most non-organic farming, and it gets into our global soil system and our water systems. And from that, it gets into the rain. It gets into the rain. So human greed is contributing to the ecology of the planet and still we continue ignoring the signs to only eat organic and to not support those companies that are creating this so-called food. So for those who don't know about glyphosate, I'd like to explain a little bit about the importance. So glyphosate is the most common pesticide and it's owned by the chemical giant you might have heard of, you know, a small company called Monsanto. Um, And Monsanto lost a court case when they were ordered to pay out $289 million to a man who claimed that herbicides using glyphosate caused his cancer. Now, it wasn't just a claim, it was right. And Monsanto were forced to pay this out. And it was due to the fact that they knew it was dangerous, but didn't do anything about it and didn't do anything to stop it. So they paid it out, but it still continues to circulate. Why? Why isn't it being stopped? If not only has it been shown to cause cancer, so much so that they had to pay out $289 million, but it's also affecting the planet as a whole, the soil quality, the water quality. Any water with that amount of toxic chemicals in it will be dead and toxic water. It will not be hydrating you. And then the biodiversity of the planet and the rainfall. So what is happening at a deeper level with these organizations that this is still allowed to continue. Listen to my episode with Vandana Shiva and you'll definitely learn more about that. So we're eating the meat that contains this amount of antibiotics. We're consuming antibiotics ourselves because we've lost connection to the healing options the earth has already given us and that is ubiquitous in our bodies. Everything non-organic we're eating contains glyphosate 
which is a known carcinogen. So why would we choose to do that? As well as all the other chemicals used to produce and process this food. And not forgetting the growth hormones and steroids used in the animals also, and the overuse of pharmaceuticals we're taking ourselves in an attempt to keep quote unquote healthy that is just drawing us further and further away from health and from nature and causing a decline in health and biodiversity and fertility. Now, I don't want this episode to be seen as really overwhelming and scary. And so you just turn it off. We have to take action. We can change this. And all the experts are telling us we can change this, but not if you switch this off because it was too scary. That's the reality we live in right now. And I feel very passionate about this. If you can't tell, (laughs) we all need to play our part right now. And then we can make huge shifts back into health for us and for the planet. If our actions as humans are now affecting the soil and even the rain, this is very much a planetary issue that every single human needs to help tackle. If you're listening to this and you're hearing it, but you're just going to go and continue eating the stuff in your fridge that's non-organic and continue doing your same weekly shop for whatever reason and not making even small changes, then I would question your dedication to healing this planet. Because this isn't about, I can't afford organic. The only thing that can change this is consumer pressure. Consumer pressure is the only thing that will change this and bring the health back to the planet. It's the sole thing right now that will change this. So if you're buying food that has been grown with glyphosate, or injected with antibiotics. And by the way, it doesn't say on the packet, use, you know, grown using glyphosate or injected with antibiotics. It will just not say that it's organic. That's it. So if you're buying that food thinking it's not going to affect you and maybe you don't have a choice and you're buying into the idea that you can't possibly be healthy without pharmaceuticals, you're inadvertently contributing to this. And if you're buying into the idea that you as one individual person can't make a change, then you've also bought into this idea that we're all separate, the story of separation. So however much we can afford is what we need to be doing. You know, what else could change in your life to enable you to buy organic? And those of us who have choices, those of us in positions of privilege to be able to buy organic food and make healthier choices need to make sure we're doing that for those that can't also. Because if all of us who can start making that shift, that is consumer pressure. The less we're buying that stuff, the less they can make it. Now, if you can't afford organic meat or religion dictates that you eat a different type of meat, don't eat meat. It's as simple as that. I know many rabbis, I've seen many articles from rabbis who actually talk about Judaism really uh, at its core in today's day and age and the way that farming mass farming operates would expect us to be vegan or vegetarian, which I find very interesting. So that's my take on it is that if I can't buy organic meat, obviously I was vegetarian for a long, long time, done episodes on this. My story about that journey is in other episodes, but I do eat meat now. I eat fully organic meat from um, a farm, a very specific farm that regenerated all their soil as well. 
very specific with the meat I eat and I don't eat it anywhere else but my home because I know that I bought it from that farm. And if I can't buy organic meat, I don't eat meat. End of. I will not contribute to the system that is enabling this to happen. We do everything we can when we can, as much as we can, because otherwise what sort of planet are we leaving for our children? The demise of our entire ecosystem and human fertility is something we can make change on if each individual being takes responsibility. But we can see from all these stats exactly why we're seeing quote unquote unexplained infertility. It's not unexplained. There's a perfectly rational explanation. And as Zach Bush explains, it's that we cannot be healthy on a sick planet. And each of us in our own way can put pressure on the corporations making this okay. Because it's not okay. And we need to reclaim our power and pile on that consumer pressure in order to make the fundamental changes we need to make for this planet to be okay and for us to continue as a human race. When we start witnessing global infertility rise, we know that we have greater issue at hand. And I saw from my own situation with Daniel how his unhealthy living patterns contributed to his low sperm count and how that changed when he changed. From the food he ate, to the water he drank, to the toothpaste he used and the deodorant he used and the stress levels he allows and the thoughts he thinks. But like I said, we can't think of this in the the usual egoic reductionist way we think of other things. The change has to happen at a global level. Human biology is rooted in this vast ecosystem we call our planet, where each of us is in some way connected to the planet and to each other. And this reliance we have on chemicals to survive, we will not survive with that mindset. That's the mindset of separation, of illness and disease, of me and mine first, of I can't, my body can't survive without this. Our bodies can very much survive when we actually listen to them and come back to nature, come back to basics and understand what it is the body needs in order to thrive. Now, another really important thing that I think is, I mean, just hugely important in this in this um, subject, but that we don't talk about, very rarely anyone mentions it. Um, obviously, Zach Bush talks about this a lot, and it's something that I learned about a long time ago because I've used homeopathy my whole life. And homeopathy works on the understanding of water memory and energy. So... Because we are made up of predominantly water, 70% water, and water holds memory, the amount we do in any given day, the stress, the lowered energetic frequency we're vibrating at through all the fear and the guilt and the judgment and the shame and all of that, that's decreasing our ability to thrive as all of this and all the trauma that we've experienced is held in the water memory of our very being right down to the water in the mitochondria and further because we don't know what goes further and there is stuff that goes further. Isn't that amazing? When we understand that, we understand that the frequency at which we vibrate dictates way more than anything else. It's essential that we move away from this idea of separation lose the fear-based thinking that serves nothing other 
than to control us, but doesn't serve our well-being in any way, and move into a state of love, or trust in the universe to do its job if we respect it, if we respect the planet it has given us to live on. When they say love heals, it's because it does. If we're all able to move into a true state of blissful love, removing any of those other low vibration energies, magical things can happen. And though fear and the survival emotions are probably the biggest contributing factors to that, cancer creating chemicals will ensure that we vibrate at very, very low illness inducing frequencies as well. So this has to be a holistic process like everything. It's never one thing in isolation. So you can be vibrating with a lot of love, but if everything you're eating is full of glyphosate and really low vibrational energy, what's your body going to do? And then vice versa, the same thing. So another thing that Dr. Zach Bush says is that we can start to mark out the mechanisms of our extinction if we don't start taking action. And the first way to take that action, like I said, is through consumer pressure. That's the answer, consumer pressure. So if you've listened to all of this, hoping for answers on how to get yourself fertile if you're struggling with infertility, yes, there are many things you can do that I teach women all the time in terms of a holistic approach, but the wider issue comes down to bringing yourself closer to nature. So if you're not falling pregnant, but you rely on pharmaceuticals for everything, or you have no track or understanding of your menstrual cycle other than how it relates to the ovulation kit you're using for the sole purpose of getting pregnant, or you eat processed food that contains harmful toxins from the processing, from the growing, or maybe you have things like artificial sweeteners in diet drinks, or too much gluten and sugar, or you're drinking toxin-laden tap water that's just dead, and you're not looking after your stress management and your mental health, there's your answer quite concisely. (laughs) It's up to each of us individually to make these changes in our own lives and let them filter out to others. It's a domino effect. And through doing that, we have to be putting pressure on the corporations enabling this to happen by not buying from them. Buy from your local farms. It's so easy these days with Abel and Cole and Riverford and all those companies. Buy organic, buy seasonal, don't opt for processed snacks. When we make a choice to do this, we're not just thinking about ourselves and our own personal needs, but we're contributing to the health of the planet and bringing it back into the vibrant, incredible, wonderful home it's offering us while we're incarnated here in this life. So what will you do with this information now? Will you take it and start being part of the change? Or are you going to go back to your fridge and carry on eating what you're eating? I really, really, really hope that you're going to take this information and be part of this revolution. If you've listened to all this, thank you for listening (laughs) so far into it. Um, If you enjoy this information, please share the podcast. Please rate the podcast. um, And don't forget to tune back in next time. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And thank you also for taking responsibility for your well-being by listening to podcasts like this. It's something I really appreciate. 
And before you go, I just wanted to remind you to check out the Recondition Your Life Academy at laurenvacneencoaching.com. It's a 12-week course that I run three times a year for small tribes of like-minded women. If you love anything you're hearing here on the podcast, this course will serve you so deeply. Everything from inner child healing, divine feminine healing and health optimization to how to find your purpose and how to find or cultivate conscious relationships and so much more. Check out all the testimonials on the website from some very happy previous Academy members. The growth and healing available in this course really is unique. Just head over to the website and make sure to get your name on the waiting list for when we launch the next semester. Sending so much love your way. 